Welcome to the Actionable Futurist podcast, a show all about the near-term future with practical and actionable advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and actionable futurist, Andrew Grill. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 2. My guest today is Gabriel Luna Ostaseski, who is Founder and Chief Revenue Officer at Braintrust. Braintrust is the first user-controlled talent network that connects organizations with highly skilled tech talent. He describes his offering as the talent network controlled by the talent. Gabriel was born and raised on a commune, and through that experience he developed a passion for unconventional, collaborative and equitable ways of working. He was inspired to start Brain Trust because he wanted to create a more level playing field in the market for freelance talent and to help freelancers earn fair fees for their work while also helping employers quickly assemble teams of qualified tech talent without the added cost and inefficiencies of middlemen. Welcome, Gabriel. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Great to be here. Now, a lot to talk about today. Let's, let's kick it off from the top. You say the way we work is broken. What do you mean by this? If you look at this on a big enough time horizon, you would say that it, um, by broken, I mean outdated. And what I mean by that is that you know, we're now in, in 2021 and the model for how work happens really hasn't evolved a whole lot over the last hundred years. Um, you know, the, 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 the traditional firm that is a, a classic kind of hierarchy has been the way in which we've run companies and the way in which we've worked in the past. But that's really breaking down as technology accelerates and, and the need for companies to flex and bend and be very, very agile. Uh, this old hierarchical model is really breaking down. And also, frankly, it's, it's soul crushing for the person working in these kind of companies. And that's why you see the rise of, of you know, the freelance movement is people wanting to kind of unbundle out of those traditional hierarchies and firms and, and do work they love on their own terms. So what's the specific problem that you are solving with Brain Trust? We're not the first people to create a freelance marketplace, right? Like this is not, this is not necessarily a new idea. Um, but the problems that we solve for the enterprises is, is essentially access to reliable and highly vetted talent. So people have to go through a really extensive application process in order to be approved and then to be able to be hired by Porsche and Nestle and, and NASA and folks like that. So a bunch of vetting up front so that for them, they hire about 25% of the people we put in front of them. So it, it dramatically uh, speeds up their, their uh, I'll say like time to hire and also like reduces risk because the, the people have already been pre-screened. So that's, that's kind of like what it looks like on the, on the enterprise side. And on the on the talent side, you know, it's it's access to you know reliable and long term work opportunities for freelancers versus like you know doing a logo for a dentist in Florida. Like these are machine learning projects for you know for Fortune one thousand companies that are large ongoing contracts. So so like I said, we're not the first people to create a freelance marketplace. We are the first people to invent this business model that is user owned and controlled. And what it does is essentially drops the, the traditional, we call them kind of middleman fee structure. So the traditional way that these marketplaces have been built is they take a big rake out of the transaction. So they take you know, sometimes up to 40% of what the freelancer makes. Um, and in some cases, they even mark up the talent to the enterprise. So there's this kind of like fat cat middlemen that are sitting in the middle in these marketplaces and, and basically building value 
on the backs of freelancers, but not you know sharing any of the of the benefits, and certainly not sharing any of the you know the control or voting or governance in these networks. And and you see that you know uh, primarily in the gig economy, you see it in examples, even you know companies like a DoorDash or places like that where. Listen, these these the people that are working on these platforms have essentially had their wages decreased, and and these companies are building hundred billion dollar hundred billion dollar enterprise value on the backs of these users, and we think that's a fundamentally kind of broken and outdated model, and we wanted to create something new. So you, you mentioned the gig economy, and I think when you say that to people, it can mean many things. I mean, when I say gig economy to my friends, they think DoorDash, they think Uber Eats, they think you know those sort of uh, gig, you know, one-time, multiple-job type uh, engagements. But are freelancers gig workers? I mean, is it unfair to, to, to call them that, or, or are we just looping them into the same bucket? It's a pretty wide aperture there, um, ranging from you know from someone that's delivering groceries to somebody that's doing machine learning projects for NASA. Uh, obviously, that's a really really wide spectrum. Um, typically, you know, it's the the method that I use is like I, I look at gig economy as typically um, more fungible skill sets and also typically lower cost or lower. Um, lower cost per hour. So things like delivering groceries or, or um, you know, driving, a, driving a, an Uber or Lyft or something like that. And obviously there's a bunch more examples of that. Uh, and then I think that what we're seeing is, is kind of a new market emerge for like highly skilled independent workers. Um, and that's really the, the market that we play in um, is, you know, folks that are unwinding out of Google and Amazon and Facebook. They're really talented engineers or designers or product managers. And, and frankly, they just, you know, don't want to be in that community anymore. They don't want to be told what to do every single day. They don't want to be told where they have to work and what they have to do. And, and, and that's kind of a new thing is these highly skilled people unbundling out of the traditional corporate. So that brings me to another question about what does the future of work look like? It's a question I'm asked all the time and I'm trying to get a view. And certainly the pandemic has altered this massively and disrupted the way we look at the future of work. So as you say, people have been at corporates for a while. I was at IBM for four years. I spent 12 years in startups. I'm now an exec for hire. But will the future of work have all these stressed out people leaving these big companies that don't want a necessarily nine to five with, with the you know with the salary type situation. What will the future of work do you think look like? And and what is I know you've done some research. What does your research bear out in terms of where the future of work is moving? What we're witnessing in real time right now is is the unbundling of the firm. Right? Traditionally the, the firm was created because the transaction costs of, of operating independently were too high. Right? Um, all the other transaction costs of running that business from, you know, from tax to finding customers and managing customers, all those sort of things. That's, that's why firms emerged and these giant hierarchies emerged. And, and now what we're seeing is that, hey, listen, software is bringing down those transactional costs. And now you have a global distribution platform to sell your wares, whether you're a, you know, an exec for hire or whether you're a, you know, a logo designer or whether you're a product manager. So now you have these, these new things that have happened, which is, you know, you now have a global distribution platform to sell your wares and sell your skills. And now software has really dramatically brought down that, that transaction cost. And that has enabled, you know, 20, 30 million new people here in America just to become freelancers. And obviously, it's a, a huge global movement. So when you bring down the costs and you, and you open up the market, 
it enables people to be able to operate independently. And so what you see is people unwinding out of these traditional corporate environments. And, and that's like, obviously that that's one lens to apply is, is like the, the talent side. The other side of the, the market is frankly that what enterprises need or what companies need to be able to remain competitive is they, they need to be able to flex and adjust really fast to be able to meet the demands. And, and obviously this last whatever 12 months has been a, a, a really prime example of that, of how quickly companies have had to shift from like selling through retail to selling in e-commerce. And, and the reality is that like the world isn't slowing down, it's speeding up. So they're going to need to increasingly move to a more flexible, agile model um, versus the traditional kind of hierarchical model. So it's like what we say is like that, that, that things are moving from hierarchies to networks. And so the way in which work happens will increasingly become networked versus work happening in the traditional command and control hierarchy in the way it's been done before. So a couple of points there, just for people listening to this in 2030, if, if podcasts are still a thing then, uh, we've just gone through the 2020-21 pandemic. What's the number one change that you've seen as a result of the pandemic in terms of the way your business is operating and the way talent is sourced and distributed? When you're able to step back from it, really interesting shifts are underway. So the move to distributed work has been going on for 10 years, right? Like it's, this is not a new thing. Uh, but it just got accelerated by a decade in the last, whatever, six or eight months. And, and I'll just kind of use a couple of examples of this. You know, when we were in, let's say, late 2019, you know, we're talking to a lot of these Fortune 1000 companies. And it was, it was really interesting. Uh, they're, they're saying, listen, we know we need to go outside the four walls of our company. We're in Omaha, Nebraska, or St. Louis, Missouri, or Michigan. And we're trying to hire data scientists and machine learning people and, and you know, software engineers. And, and frankly, those people don't live, you know, within 20 miles of, of where our headquarters are. So they kind of knew that they needed to evolve and change. Um, but I would say it was like vitamins. Like it was kind of like something that they knew they should be doing. Um, and then immediately, or I, the, the the biggest barrier was this kind of like anachronistic thinking around butts and seats, right? It's just a cultural thing that has lasted for 20 years that like people aren't working unless you can see them. Um, and then, you know, listen, in, in May and June of, of last year, like we got this onslaught of these large enterprises coming to us saying, hey, guess what? We can't even get into our own offices. And the biggest barrier that we had was this kind of cultural issue of butts and seats, and that's gone. So, hey, remember when we were going to dip our toes in the water and do like three or four like little small pilots with you guys? Well, like now we want to do 25. Um, and and frankly, since like since May of last year, we, we've just been barely keeping up. We've been growing 30 to 60 percent month over month organically. The tide has shifted there. And it's never going to go back to the way that it was. We were fortunately the right business at the right time. So I used to run a collaborative uh, consulting practice at IBM. So I'm drinking the Kool-Aid when it comes to how you collaborate in a distributed workforce. What have you seen change and what needs to change in order to enable a distributed workforce? As you say, bums on seats. I come from that genre where if you're at work sitting down, your boss was happy. Now, as you've, as you've seen, they, they can't get talent. They can't even get talent into the office. They have to have distributed talent. What tools have you seen that are working really well that allow work to be distributed and run a 24-7 shop? A lot of people want to focus on the tools, and I think that the tools are important. But 
the reality is the tools change every day, right? The, the tools that people were using six months ago is dramatically different than the tools that they're using today, just because um, th there's a constant evolution and new tools being developed. So I don't focus so much on the tools. I focus on the on the methods and the and the kind of strategies and tactics for how you get distributed work to happen. So one of the biggest things is is moving to asynchronous communication. Um, and, and that's one of the things that a lot of these big corporates have had difficulty doing. They basically moved out of their offices, but then they just kept all the same meeting structure. Um, and, and so people are just sitting on Zooms for 10 hours a day. And so you actually don't get the benefits of distributed work when you're synchronous but distributed. You're just now sitting in your sweatpants, but you're on Zoom meetings 10 hours a day. And so I think that's that's one of the things that, that is a huge unlock because when you unlock asynchronous communication, so moving from like spoken to written communication, um, what it does is it unlocks a global talent pool versus people having to be within your two-hour time zone. And that that's a huge unlock, especially if you're if you are talent constrained, if you're trying to find the best you know te technical talent in the world, if you can now expand to a global footprint. That's a huge unlock for lots of corporations. So I, I actually, it sounds simple, but it's just like actually getting rid of more meetings and moving more things to asynchronous communication is kind of a muscle that if you continue to build that muscle, it opens up a world of talent. It's an interesting phenomenon because I know when I was at IBM, we used an internal messaging system called SameTime. And if a bit like on instant messaging with your friends, if you're messaging and it says they're typing, you're kind of sitting there waiting for them to respond. And that's synchronous. You actually can't do anything while you're waiting. How do you unlearn that and then go, it's okay if they get back in two hours. I'm not hanging on it. And I don't have to have a Zoom call to find out what they're doing. How do you internally in your organization use that asynchronous to best effect? For us in our organization, we, listen, we, we operate across 100 countries, right? Um, and so everything is is asynchronous communication for the most part, besides maybe one one meeting or so a week that we do as, as an all hands. Um, and it, it's not fancy, but you use Google Docs, you use Asana. Those are tools that we use. Um, and then we use tools like Slack actually for things that are um, asynchronous, but just fun, just like kind of the water cooler stuff. We have a channel for music. We have a channel for food. We have a channel for like, you know, pets and babies and a channel for like reading list. But there's, there's no like real work that actually happens there. It's just a, a, a reprieve for people when they're when they just need to like hop in and look at cat pictures for a little while. And that's the thing I get asked all the time, Andrew, you know, we, we're now away from the office. How do you have that stolen water cooler moment? Uh, I've actually did a, a, an induction for a bunch of graduates. They will never actually meet some of the people they work with probably for months, if not years. So how do young people especially learn the skills if they're sitting at home in their sweatpants? How do you have that water cooler moment? Is it, as, as you say, using Slack um, if you can't actually meet people? But I suppose in your organization, you're maybe never going to meet them. Uh, how do you assimilate that? Or, or is it, as you say, using Slack and those sort of things to use the human parts rather than the work parts of, of the day? It's obviously a complex answer to that um, and, and highly dependent upon the culture of the organization, right? So we've really built an intentionally distributed culture from the start, which is different than if you've been in an office and you're trying to like catch up to this remote work. So I think that's an important preface. Um, for us, a lot of our 
the way in which we think about building a, a company is we, we build the values um, into the company around flexibility and autonomy and freedom and moving fast with precision. Like those are values for us. And then we have methods, which is essentially how we communicate, what tools we use, what the kind of the order of operations are, like what communication tools do you use in what kind of scenarios. So it does take a little bit more planning and, and certainly a lot more intentionality. But the benefits that you get from, from taking that time and setting up those kind of systems are, uh, frankly, 10x benefits. Um, I've built companies here in Silicon Valley, and, and I've never seen something grow as fast and also be able to attract th this caliber of talent from around the world. And so, I'm, you know, I, I, I hope that more companies are experiencing this. And I, I think you are seeing it right now. You're seeing more companies move to this distributed world. And over the course of the next few years, I my, my sense is that like, you know, these companies will be the leaders. The companies that don't have a plan for moving to fully remote are going to be in real serious trouble over the course of the next three to five years. Because frankly, people don't want to go back to the office in the way that they were before. It's not just work from home. It's interesting that people that I know that have been displanted from an office in the city of London to work, work in their home now. But what you're saying, it's now distributed that if you want great talent, the talent may not be in London, it may not be in Edinburgh, it may not be in, in Beijing, it may be somewhere else around the world. So do you think that just opens um, a whole new way of working and maybe business models change because we don't have to have full-time employees, we're using lots of contractors? The simple reality today is that all companies are now tech companies, right? <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether you're a CPG company or you're an automotive company, all of these companies are increasingly hiring more and more technical teams from, you know, from Goldman Sachs to Nestle to Porsche to everyone in between. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that they are now in competition with Google and Facebook and Amazon and all the companies out here in Silicon Valley for the, for the best technical talent except they're in locations where those people do not exist. So it's a false choice to think that you can hire a bunch of data scientists and build those kind of technical teams when you're in, you know, in the middle of Michigan or you're in Nebraska or you're in, you know, parts of Europe. Um, and so I think what people are realizing is, you know, as we increasingly become more and more technical in, in the companies that we're building, there are incredible pools of talent around the world that have certain specialties. So like if you're looking for the best product people in the world, like guess what? They live in, in Silicon Valley and they live in New York, right? If you're looking for the best machine learning engineers in the world, like a lot of them live in Kiev. Um, and so what you're finding is actually increasingly you, you're having these kind of clusters of amazing talent in places around the world based upon the the educational systems in those areas and also like the, the the local network effects that develop when people are learning those kind of skills and, and developing that kind of experience. And I, I, I think that um, increasingly companies are going to have, you know, they're going to have machine learning teams in Kiev and they're going to have product teams in New York and they're going to have design teams in, you know, in, in Korea. Um, and if they really want to have the best people in the world, like that's you go to where the talent is versus try to get the talent to move to places like, you know, Michigan or Nebraska. 
What advice would you give to a, a seasons manager who is used to having, as you say, bums on seats, people in front of them, to this distributed workforce? What should they be doing now to adapt so that they can actually embrace this global availability of talent? There was a really interesting article. I think it was an HBS article. They were talking about like what makes the best remote managers and that it's actually something very different than the traditional manager in an office. So the traditional manager in the office you know, oftentimes it's like, can be a white male, more charismatic, like a kind of a more of a raw, raw manager that's in an office and can be more authoritative or commanding. And, and that actually doesn't work in a remote environment. So, so what you find is you have managers that are more like introverts that are really successful in remote environments um, that are empathetic and that are focused on, on, you know, attention to detail, really clear communication and, and more servant leadership where they're focused on helping their people to succeed and understanding that they, that these people are not just workers. They have kids at home. They have other responsibilities that they're taking care of. And so I think that the types of leaders that are successful in this environment are quite different than the old model of, of leadership that we might've had in the past. And I think that's frankly a really good thing. It's going to build more diverse leadership teams um, and you're going to have different types of people grow into into leaders in a company. And that's, frankly, I think a really good thing for society. I've always believed that innovation should come from any part of a company, not just the innovation team. Talk to me about your notion of distributed innovation and how you see that working in practice. Oftentimes within, within corporations, um, they have you know, lots of great ideas. And sometimes those ideas come from the edges. Um, one of the challenges to those models is that oftentimes innovation teams are, you know, whether it's innovation teams at big banks or innovation teams at, you know, at CPG companies, they're, they're often pretty much capacity constrained, right? So they, they have some really smart, innovative thinkers, but they oftentimes don't have, you know, the techni- increasingly the, the nature of the innovations that people are going after are more technical innovations, consumer experience innovations, things like that. So one of the blockers to, the, to this kind of hierarchical innovation model is that they're, they're actually limited by the amount of tests and experiments and projects that they can take on. In many cases, they might have like three or four like innovation directors in one of these big companies, and maybe each of them can handle one or two projects, right? So let's say their overall capacity is maybe like eight projects at any given time. What if like each of those people could could hire on contract product managers or contract innovation consultants and 5x their individual capacity, right? To be able to spin up five times as many innovation initiatives and tests and experiments without having to build all of that, you know, in-house or in their office. And so when I talk to, you know, innovation leaders that we work with, like, like Jim from Pacific Life, like what he says is, listen, brain trust is like a force multiplier for me. Like I can now have five times as much innovation, but without scaling up the headcount. You mentioned you're not the only company doing this. Now, at one end of the scale, you've got Fiverr. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment you're like Fiverr, but they had a Super Bowl ad. So the general populace in the US now know about this gig economy. But I know that your friends at LinkedIn and Facebook are looking at marketplaces. Where do you see them evolving and will they compete with you or will they just help um, identify that this is the way forward? Running a Super Bowl ad costs a lot of money. I think everyone knows that, right? Then you have to say, like, well, where does that money come from? 
Well, it, it comes from taxing your users, right? So when you take 20 or 30% of what all of your freelancers make on the platform and you extract all of that value from them and put it into Super Bowl commercials, I mean, it, it's one way of operating, but ours is, is kind of antithetical to that. So we take 0% from the freelancers. We let them keep 100% of, of what they earn on the platform. And in addition to that, the network will be owned and controlled by the actual freelancers. So you'll have you know a majority owned uh, talent network owned by owned and, and controlled by the talent, and that means they'll be able to vote on product features. They'll even be able to vote on things like if we wanted to create a Super Bowl ad. Um, and we think that that distribution of governance and control is is the next wave of how marketplaces are built. Um, if first wave of marketplaces was, you know, kind of the Craigslist of the world, the second wave of kind of Web two marketplaces was, you know, the, the Fivers of the world or or Airbnb, you know, Drop, um, DoorDash, Uber. Um, listen, th these all rely on the same thing: extracting disproportionate rents from your users and concentrating all that wealth and all that control to a very very small number of people. And we're starting to see the externalities of that in, in the world show up today, you know, with the, the wealth gap and the inequality gap that we're, that's being perpetuated by these kind of models. And, and our fundamental belief is that the next wave of marketplaces will be owned and operated and controlled by the users. And that's how it should be. And that's what we set out to prove when we, when we started this company. So the way you're enabling that through technology, yours using distributed ledger technology, explain how that will work in practice. So we use blockchain technology and, and more specifically, we, we use a, a type of implementation called tokenization. And so what tokenization is, is essentially to represent ownership and control in the network. Um, and in, in the Brain Trust network, there's a fixed supply of tokens. There's 250 million tokens that can ever be issued, um, built into the code. And then the community, the, the, the talent um, and other members of our community can earn B-Trust by referring more talent, inferring more clients, and then also doing other actions in the network like doing peer-to-peer -peer screening. So all of our talent on the network have been referred by other talent in the network. And all of the people get screened by other talent in the network and get paid in B-Trust to do so. Right? So like level five Python people are screened by other level five Python people in the community and they earn B-Trust for doing so. And then they can use those tokens when, when we do the full, um, full launch, they can use them for a variety of different things, ranging from our academy to staking along with their bids, which acts kind of like insurance. Um, and, and also they'll be able to vote on the, on the roadmap and the features of the, of the network, like an open source project, but, but actually having voting and control. So, um, you know, it is, it is a new business model and a new way that you can organize a network of people around the, the globe in a, in a trustless way. So I'm a futurist, so I've got to look at what's next. And I want to ask you what's next in a minute, but I want to throw an idea at you and, and see if it's a good one. And I've been sort of working on this for a while. So a lot of your talent will be mid to senior level people, product managers, you said, uh, technical people. But for the CFO who's had enough of the company, for the CMO, for the CXO, the executive gig worker, someone who has had a senior role and wants to have a portfolio career, maybe brain trust isn't right for them just yet. But do you see it evolving where you've got someone who doesn't want to work five days a week, they want to 
have a distributed portfolio career? And would a brain trust or a brain trust exec be something that they could actually use to further their career? When you start a marketplace, you, you have to start in a, in a small set um, to build enough like market depth and liquidity and essentially build the right supply and demand, right? So you start in a really narrow focus. We started with with highly skilled technical roles as the first focus. It, it also happens to be a trillion and a half dollar market. So very narrow, but very, very deep. This is going to happen for all other knowledge workers, right? Both at, at the lower end and also in other categories. Like the, the, the example that you have of, of CFOs or, or finance people, like it's, it's going to happen over the course of the next couple of years, along with other categories of knowledge workers from ranging from marketers to writers. And we're already seeing that. Um, so it, it's that, that shift is all already well underway. And, you know, we're seeing that demand from both sides. We're just not haven't uh, haven't yet opened up those categories. You launched in stealth mode. So how did you go about funding? You're not new to funding and startups, but how did you go about it? And why did you use the stealth mode? We did the first round of fundraising in 2018. We we raised six million dollars in the seed round uh, from a great group of, of Silicon Valley investors, including IDEO and Homebrew and True Ventures uh, and many other like amazing angels. Um, and then we spent about 2019 really building the first version of the of the marketplace and platform, global payments and escrow services and, and all the functionality that we would need. Um, and then in, in early 2020, we went into invite only beta with enterprises and, and had like the first customers of Nestle and uh, and Deloitte and Porsche, and NASA, and then uh, and it's continued to grow substantially since then. Um, so we 10x the business last year. And in November, raised another round of strategic funding, raised $21 million from some amazing investors, including Pierre Omidyar, who's the founder of eBay. Um, and, and the business is, is off to the races. So in, in total, we've raised about $26 million um, to fund the company. And, and uh, I think that's probably the last round of fundraising we'll ever have to do. So what's your elevator pitch? Uh, obviously, you're looking for funding for these people. We've got uh, 25 seconds in lift. What, what's your elevator pitch for the business? For enterprises to be able to access highly skilled technical talent on demand that have been pre-screened and vetted so they can hire in days versus months. And instead of having huge markups like consulting enterprises, we charge a flat 10% markup to the enterprises, which means that their budgets now go three or four times as far, but they have access to talent that are coming out of Facebook or Google or Amazon. You teased me on LinkedIn just before our recording. You said there's something new coming up. What's next? Give us the scoop. One of our fundamental beliefs is that we actually want, we're building an open source community, right? So everything will be on blockchain as we get increasingly more and more distributed. Um, and so we're building out in the open, which means sharing more of, of how we're doing, uh, what's going well, what's not going well. And we're announcing both a, a, a brand upgrade and also announcing a bunch of new customers that have come aboard and also some huge milestones for the company. Um, and uh, and we're increasingly going to be doing all of that out in the open and out in the public so that our community and, and people can see how we're building this. So where do you see yourselves in a couple of years? Well, where do you want to get to? And not, not just in funding, but in terms of the, the marketplace and, and brand recognition and those sort of things. Right now, we have about 50 of the Fortune 1000 companies uh, that are using Braintrust. Um, and I would like to see that grow to be half of the Fortune 1000 companies that are using Braintrust. Um, and, and frankly, what that means is that we're going to be able to you know, put hundreds of millions of dollars into the hands of, of independent workers around the world. 
Um, and that's our mission here is, is to distribute economic opportunity more equitably around the world. And so it, if we continue on the path that we're on now, it just means that we're, we're you know, distributing opportunity to people around the world in environments where they would never get an opportunity to work with a NASA or a Porsche or a Nestle because they don't live in places where, where those companies are headquartered. What three practical tips could you share with our audience around the future of work? Increasingly, there's now a, a global market to sell your skills, whether you're a CFO or a designer or, a, you know, you make short videos, whatever it may be. If you're a creator, you now have a global market. Right. So that's that's one kind of tip is first off, think about it uh, rather than think about your services locally. Think about them globally. I think the second thing is, is that own your content um, so if you're creating podcasts, if you're writing, whatever you may be doing is, is you know, being moving from labor to being an owner uh, is a big fundamental shift there. And, and the third part is, is focus on building your audience, um, whether again, whether you're writing or doing podcasts, whatever it may be, is building your own audience. And that's how you move from, you know, traditionally the freelancers have been late, just labor, right? And that's how you move from being, you know, from labor to to owning capital or to being an owner. Um, And I think that's a really important shift uh, for people to be able to make. So you're not just selling your hours, but you're actually building an asset for yourself um, and, and owning a piece of that asset. Gabriel, this is amazing. It's it's not the first uh, time I've heard about this, but I love the concept. I love how you're explaining. I wish you every success. How can people find out more about you and Brain Trust? Our website is usebraintrust.com. We do a lot on, on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm Gabe Luna O on Twitter. Uh, if you want to follow uh, what we're doing here, and we'll be sharing a lot more about kind of the, the ins and outs and, and you know how it's all how it's all going. Well, thank you so much. All the best, and uh, I'll see you on Brain Trust. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Actionable Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at actionablefuturist.com. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops delivered in person or virtually at actionablefuturist.com. Until next time, this has been the Actionable Futurist Podcast.